Welcome back to Knowledge Draw. My name's Josh. And I'm Derek. You're opening with a fun fact today, Derek, right? I've yes. been looking forward to this for yes. two weeks. Now, this is uh, much better than my last one. Not nearly as much fun as the last one you gave. Um, but just just as a, a query, what is the first tallest man-made structure? Uh, the first tallest? Yeah. I, mean, I just Just the, like... The first building structure, or whatever that was of notable height, that is in recorded history. Uh, confirmed. Like confirmed. The Great Pyramids. Yes. So the the Great Pyramid of Giza. All right. Now, what is the second building? What what's the what's the one that succeeds the Pyramid of Giza? Do you know? Uh, I would have no idea, and then I'd have to jump to like modern architecture. I would be very impressed if you did, because the next second uh the one that succeeds the uh pyramid of giza is called old saint paul's cathedral in england and oh. it just barely beat it by like a couple of feet um but what i want to talk about is the time frame so from the pyramid of giza till this cathedral three thousand years like that's an, that's I, amazing. That that's wild to me. Like yes, they're completely different structures because they're using buttresses and all kinds of different things, and the pyramid's just a pyramid. But my fun fact is this, but also like, how advanced are the the Egyptians for having built something that not only lasted three thousand years plus, but w stood as the largest structure or tallest structure made for a significant amount of time yeah no that's fascinating we touched a little bit on it in our auto automation episode go check that out but <laughs> yeah like it's still a marvel of engineering today like i don't mm -hmm. even think we know quite how it was built no no, no and then it, for it to last three thousand yeah. years ancient uh architecture is amazing yeah. in what they did um so and just kind of add on to this i took a, a history of engineering class mm -hmm. last semester and we dove into a lot of Egyptian engineering and you can go and see their like iteration through the process of learning about how to build pyramids. So like the angle that you see on pyramids, yep. that was something that they learned through trial and error. You can go and find um, a pyramid that they changed the angle of the pyramid midway. They call it the bent pyramid because oh, it goes up at a steeper yeah. angle. And then it started to collapse, and so they changed it midway <laughs> through building. That's um, so cool. And then there, we just found the remains of this pyramid, but someone was building another pyramid earlier that was a lot steeper. But it, the theory is it collapsed because it never finished, because um, we can just tell from the remains that there was no cap, there was no more building material on top of it because it, it was too steep. Wow. And so it, it's just, to me, like, these guys have sticks and rocks, and they're building you know, 300, 400 square foot, uh, not square foot, uh, feet tall structures. And like today we're just like, oh, it's just a pyramid. Like you just stack blocks on each other, but these blocks are thousands of pounds. Yeah. I, I was going to say, did they really just have sticks and stones or was there something else going yeah, on there? Yeah. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, no, I, I, I had the chance to go to Chichen Itza this past, this past summer. Where's that? Uh, down in Mexico. Okay. Um, and so I believe it was the, the Mayans that built this. Uh -huh. But, like, the super cool thing about that is during either solstice, I believe, 
perfectly illuminates one face and the other place the other face of the pyramid becomes completely shadowed and Dude. it was like this super big thing but like they were so um astrologically i believe is the word advanced astronomically uh, as- well like to As- deal with like this astrology and stuff the the stars oh because oh, so you're actually talking about like yeah, astrology yeah, yeah. not yeah, yeah. astronomy okay. yeah or maybe both I, I, I guess i don't know what astronomy is like stars astrology is like venus is in retrograde it's affecting my mood kind of thing oh definitely astronomy then okay <laughs> um yep sorry, sorry sorry okay but yeah definitely super advanced in astronomy and then they had um just a lot of cool structures within that but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they had they had this it, it was a, a, a stadium for a sport and it was like so the acoustics in there was so oh, crazy I, loud. Yeah, you could I've like about you could like talk super quietly, and you could hear it fifty yards on the other side of the structure. Amazing. Wait, they figured that out hundreds of years ago, and you're just like, how how do, how would you experimentally figure that out? Like, obviously they'd start out in a canyon or something, right? Like, I don't. Or maybe somebody gave them this information. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in for our other podcast. <laughs> conspiracy theories with josh and Derek. seriously but yeah like <laughs> a- ancient architecture i think is just fascinating yeah like, no i i had a lot of fun with that history of engineering because it wasn't just ancient engineering we went all the way from the pyramids to like uh, locomotives mm. and, and stuff like that so it was just i'll have to do some more fun facts from that class because it there's a lot that's awesome so yeah awesome awesome fun fact and yeah there's definitely an episode or a series or maybe a whole podcast about ancient civilization and their structures. Yeah, absolutely. So. I, I have no doubt that you could probably find one that exists in podcasts. Yeah. Actually, there was there was this Rogan podcast I was listening to. I I forget who the, uh, the, the guys were on it, but they just also released a Netflix series mm-hmm. on ancient, ancient um, structures and their conspiracy theories behind it, too. <laughs> so... Okay. Rogan, Rogan's always a great place. Yes, but. yes, I, I, I do enjoy his, uh, his podcasts. But now, now to get into the meat of ours. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Today, we'll be talking about risk, and not not the, the board game? game, not oh, the board game. Dang. I was gonna say that that destroys families and uh, implodes friendships. Even though the game is fantastic and does all of those things and more. I love playing it, but no, yes. not that, not that risk, okay. but, but okay. a general discussion on risk, um, how it is overall and how, how we kind of see that in engineering. And this was really inspired by the recent collapse of the Silicon Valley bank. And also a yeah. recent event I went to, um, at ASU put on through a AEI, the AEI branch at ASU who brought in a terrific speaker who had some great perspectives about this too. So what's AEI? Uh, the American Enterprise Institute. It's like a think tank okay. over in DC. So yeah, I have, I have a friend who's pre- pretty like politically involved and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So he invited me and it was, it was a fantastic discussion. Okay. So, but kind of to start, to start in general news because a fascinating topic, right? Yeah, yeah. The Silicon Valley Bank collapse. And for those not super aware or informed on the subject, SVB was is a California-based bank who was super specialized as like a lender to tech startups. That's that's where they did mm-hmm. most of their bread and butter. And on the 10th, Friday the 10th, I believe, 
they became the biggest bank closure since the Great Recession, and they had $212 billion in assets. What's the Great Recession? When was the Great Recession? Uh, great Depression? No, Great Recession. recession. So since like 2000. Like 2008? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Um, and so just kind of kind of how it happened is um, f- following an announcement on Wednesday, they had sold $21 billion in securities at a $1.8 billion loss Be- because pe- people, people were, people were pulling out money um, and they needed, they needed to fund these withdrawals. Right. So uh-huh. this, this is how they proposed to do, this is how they did do it. Um, and they, and they, in that they sought to raise 2.25 billion from investors through stock pass stock packages and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they were failing to secure funding for this. And on Thursday, Thursday, the stock dropped 60% and then pre-market on Friday, it was down another 60% before they, you know, halted trading and, Ooh. you know, eventually collapsed. And the reason they took such a loss on this is because they, invested heavily into debt like u.s treasuries and mortgage-backed securities mm-hmm. um, but as the fed raised rates the value of these assets decreased because you know they, they had like one point roughly like 1.7 to 2 percent interest on these but now like interest rates were you know w- way above that and mm-hmm. this was way above like the current 10-year treasury yield so mm-hmm. they sold out they lost about $2 billion and that kind of sent everybody into a panic. Everybody was trying yeah, to withdraw yeah. and then they couldn't come up with the funds to, you know, withdraw that's, everybody that's ultimately so leading to a collapse. Um, to add on to this, I remember, and I'm, I may be wrong, but if I remember correctly a year or two ago, um, the federal regulation regarding how much money banks had to have on hand mm-hmm. it used to be you know some percent like some like 20 30 percent of whatever they had they had to have on hand for when people wanted to take their money out yep they changed that percentage to zero that'd be interesting to fact check somebody fact check that yeah i i'm tempted to look it up right now because i'm like i'm pretty sure that that was changed and when i heard about it i was like that sounds like a like a horrible idea. Like, sure, banks are gonna have a lot more cash to do stuff with, but are they gonna manage that responsibility responsibly? And then, like, we're gonna run into a Great Depression era where people are just gonna lose money because everyone's yeah, yeah. taking their money out. And I mean that that was a huge thing in SVB, right? They ultimately mm-hmm. made very poor investment choices. Um, As a, f- a former chair on, I think, one of the Fed district courts said, this was a colossal failure in asset liability risk management. Um, and, and to highlight some of their failures, right, SVB did not have a chief risk officer for eight months prior to them collapsing. And then, like, one in a financial institution, and frankly, most institutions, that's doesn't, very scary. Yeah, doesn't he approve, like... I mean, I mean, yeah, right. It like that that should that should have been a a flag right away, right? That your board has not filled that position in eight months. But like, and then and, you know, in addition to that, not having somebody overseeing the overall risk of your bank, right? Um, as I said before, they're specialized in tech startups. You know, they're venture capitalists, and this this is very risky, and it you know it, it exposed itself on the asset and liability side, right? 
And <clears throat> because you know they they with withdrew so fast, they weren't they weren't able to liquid liquidize mm -hmm. and fulfill these with withdrawal requests. So um, um, I I fact checked myself. It's on the FedReserve.gov. As of March fifteenth, twenty twenty, announced that the reserve requirement ratios to zero percent effective March twenty sixth, twenty twenty. Wow. So I wonder uh, if it, in, I wonder if it had something to do with COVID. Yeah, with all the liquidity. But they didn't change it back. That is fascinating. So interesting. Yeah, and so like ultimately, what this was about, right, is they were they were invested risk heavy in into assets that were that were very risky due to inflation rates. Mm -hmm. They were not diversified. They were in a specific risky part part of banking, yeah, right? Industry, yeah. And where it all went wrong is they failed to adequately analyze the risk of pulling all that money out and taking that $2 billion loss and how that would, you know, affect the confidence in everybody mm -hmm. and, you know, all, all the resulting things from that. Yeah, that makes sense. And so from what I've seen and, you know, what I've seen it from what I've seen and what I've um, researched, really, there's two kinds of decision makers that are bad decision makers, right? And I would say the majority of people fall into, into one of these two because there aren't that many good decision makers, unfortunately, right? I mean, it, it's a hard thing yeah. to do, right? It's a it's a very tough skill to develop, for sure. But there's, in my opinion, these two groups are, in group one, you have people that are always very decisive, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they have adequate information or not, yeah. and regardless <laughs> of whether they analyze all the factors coming into and all the factors, like, leaving, right? So, like... Yeah. Yeah. In this case, I mean, you could let's break it down into a lot of individual factors, right? But like the the people that made this decision were not able to adequately analyze the risk that followed them taking out two billion dollars or twenty one billion dollars or two billion dollars in losses, with the fact that you know um, the USA economy right now is much more cash strapped than it was two years ago. So there's not as much money for these. Um, venture these these startups mm -hmm. to raise money from so they're pulling a lot more from the bank reserves now than they were two years ago mm -hmm. right so there's higher all, all these more withdrawals and so people are taking more money you're taking this two billion dollar loss to supplement and there's other things you need to do because you don't have capital so they failed to realize just how bad this looks and how how much trust they lost through this which ultimately led to the collapse of the bank right yeah. there there, there, what, there was just, they were just like, oh shoot, we need money, let's do this, and it's, it seems as if there was no thought press process after that. Could it, could it also? I agree with you with the risk assessment was was bad. Mm -hmm. Could you also say that they didn't manage public perception very well? Yeah, but that's, is that that's an as, I mean, that's an aspect of risk, right? Okay, I mean, if okay. if you don't trust your bank, if the public doesn't trust a bank, yeah, I'm taking my money out. Heck yeah, you are. And what does that do when everybody's trying to take their money out of a bank? Especially if they have zero on hand. Exactly, right? <laughs> and so, and so that that's one group of people, right? Okay. They, they they jump to immediate decisions. Yeah. Um, they they're not able to accurate accurately weigh all the factors that come in to make the good decision, mm -hmm. and they're not able to analyze all the factors that 
uh, proceed the or proceed come after the decision and analyze the risk in in both cases effectively. And I think you can almost jump to the opposite end of the spectrum, and then you have like the data analyzer, analyzer, analyzers. They get bogged down so much in the data and the the risk and yeah. in every minute detail. It's like you're running a trucking company and on truck 302, you're scared of the, the loose uh, you know hub nut, right? Like yeah. it's you're you're worried at like the atomic level. Almost. Yeah, and you get you get in so deep, you're worried about so many little things that you lose sight of the big picture, and you're not able to effectively analyze the situation anymore mm-hmm. because you've lost perspective. Yeah. And I think people can jump into these two groups so easily. Oh yeah, no, no, there. I I can as you're talking about this, I can see in myself that there there's definitely times where I'm the I just made a decision because I'm like it just that that's what feels right. Mm-hmm. And then there's other times where it's like, no, I'm gonna like really dive into this, and it doesn't help that my engineering brain kind of takes over. Yeah. And I just I I should show you the spreadsheet that I made for justifying an electric car to my wife. <laughs> like, dude, I've like I've got like a log tracker or a a trip tracker and like mileage and uh, electricity utility rates and like all these different things that are are supposedly going to help me justify mm-hmm. i think i've made a pretty good case but we'll i'll let you know i'll, I'll update i'll update <laughs> you guys yes keep us updated but yeah it's like this information dump right it's almost like it's like it's like the same tactic like a lawyer uses right like somebody's suing somebody and they mm-hmm. th- there's a piece of information they know exists and so the other other lawyer is like fine you can have it along with this 52 foot truckload of additional documents, right? <laughs> and you better sift yeah. through every document and you better find it. It's yeah, like they want to bury it. Yeah, it's like you're doing the same thing but like opposite like instead of trying to find the one thing, you're just you're trying to scan every piece of that 52 page or sorry, 52 truck uh load load bed yeah, of, load, yeah. of, load of paper and you're trying to memorize everything and have that factor in the decision where really mm-hmm. it it you know, at that level it doesn't matter. Um you need to be able to understand the strong points of of the overall arching dis, arch, arch the, the strong points of the overall things that are impacting your decision. You don't you yeah. don't need to know little things. You need to know big impacts, mm-hmm. general reasons why. You you might need to go down in the weeds of a little bit, so you better understand the whole problem. But yeah. you don't need to get bogged down. But it's it, it's almost as if you there 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 can be a million variables that affect a decision. Mm-hmm. But and just to take your truck driver situation. <laughs> Yep, um, go ahead. <laughs> I butchered the, it. The, uh, the surface roughness of the road is a variable in your travel. Sure. But is the surface roughness of the road enough of a variable that will change the outcome of your trip more so than if you don't plan your 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 sleeping shifts appropriately? Like, yeah. You need to sleep. It's the law for for trucking companies you have to sleep you know x number of hours whatever or you have to be off the clock um, x number of hours so you have to find what those variables are the, the yeah. ones that affect the most change because mm-hmm. if i'm worried so much about the surface roughness and i optimize my outcome for just surface roughness then i could still fail because i didn't sleep enough yeah exactly and it's i actually did this cool thing in uh my statistics class, I think it was my junior year, we, we had to do a project to end the year. Yep. And I'm super into fantasy football. So I, I know there's like databases out there that 
have a bunch of different statistics on players, whether, um, you know, production through freshman, sophomore, junior year, then Mm -hmm. they're, you know, combine testing numbers which test like weight speed strength all those sorts of things you you have all these data points yeah and i I know there's already known correlations in the industry but i I wanted to make my own model Mm -hmm. um and it i forget the exact mathematics i used but it it went along a little bit with machine learning not Mm -hmm. quite there but it was close um but but it basically took all these variables and was able to to assign weights in in the correlate like it correlated all these different variables in different ways and it was yeah. able to assign weights. So, so like you could tell which one. Was yeah. So I could important. tell like which, like which combination of four actually led to meaningful, um, meaningful data or like in this case, like productive players. Mm-hmm. So like in my case, if, if, um, you know, I input a new player with these data trends and it matches that player would have a higher likelihood of him, um, succeeding at the next level, or in my case, being a good player on my fantasy team, which leads to money. So all yeah. good things lead to money. Yeah. Right? Well, and you could also extrapolate that data. If you get the right variables, you can go into a high school setting and you can see his speed, his weight, his whatever, yeah. whatever and you can say, okay, this guy's, he's got, you know, <laughs> he's got XYZ variables going for him. I want to make a bet on this guy. Yeah. That's like more it, of a scouting situation. But Yeah. And it's, it's harder to extrapolate all the way to high school, but, but college, there's some decent data there and not, not for every position. This is mostly like offensive because yeah. that, that's what matters in yeah. fantasy football. But no, it, it was super interesting on the lesson. Like you said, it, it helps determine which f- factors are big and which factors, you know, I could care less about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But all that to say, like generally sound advice in the financial world, um, is diversify, right? I'm, I'm in no means a financial expert, but a lot of people say for the safest investment, diversify, right? Yes. Because that, that way it doesn't matter what sector you're in, uh, what type of investment, whether it's crypto stocks, real estate, if one sector falls, not usually, typically all sectors don't fall. So, so you're, you're um, diversified against risk. So relatively safe, as safe, as safe as investments are going to be, right? Not yes. all investments are safe. But. Yes. And so... It's it's kind. We'll say it's rel, there's a relatively decent measure to um, to measure risk in finance, and I'm way oversimplifying it, but sure. diversify. But Valid. like, as, as you get into risk management of other industries, other situations, it can be become such a complex thing, and mm-hmm. to like get into something like super complex, like throughout history, like the U.S. and like special services, they have ins- installed leaders in foreign countries right sometimes like dictators or you, you know something to try and push towards democracy but sometimes they're you know they're fascist the like like how do you how do you manage the risk in that situation like i i couldn't even begin to tell you where to start or like looking at energy opportunities um i was talking to somebody and um they said like it's opportunistic to look at energy sources outside the u.s if there's no um limit on what they can make because in the u.s there's like a predetermined amount of money you can make on top of what you're, what you're selling it for right but if you get into a country where there's no limit then you there there's a lot of profit but are you, are you saying energy opportunities like like products or, or i'm confused like like producing energy like let's let's say like um oil in mexico or like solar or wind in mexico okay so like you produce energy at 
at some kilowatt hour, right? And you sell mm-hmm. it to the U.S. Um, or you sell it to different places in the U.S. and you make some, like, there's some predetermined amount of money you can make. Okay, so they set the profit limit. Yeah, in the U.S. Okay. But if, okay. if you go to somewhere where that's not sanctioned, like, let, oh, let's say it's not sanctioned so in Mexico. If I'm a company yeah. and I want to make a buttload of money, yeah, you, I can go into Mexico, just as an example, I can yeah. go into Mexico, build this solar farm, and then just... And there's not that cap on yeah. it, so then you can make a lot more money. Okay, but okay. if you're that same company and you go to Canada and there is a cap, there's no reason to risk yourself going to Mex- or to Canada yeah. where there is that same cap and ha- having all those ex- extra things that come with it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, mm-hmm. in, in some places, it's easier to break down. At some places, I'm sure they've, throughout time, trial and error, they've, they've found where risk is, right? But yeah. really getting to engineering, I think, for a long time, it was very easy to assess risk, like down, down, almost down to the component level, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, getting to the very base of every design, bringing it back to the classroom, like how, the risk of a design can correlate with what? I would say the safety factor, right? Yeah. At, well, at, at the very base, all the way down. Yeah. That that's the easiest way in engineering, and I guess for those who don't know what a safety factor is. Um, basically if you have a wheelbarrow that somebody says needs to lift 800 pounds and I designed a wheelbarrow that could lift exactly 800 pounds that has a safety factor of one, Mm -hmm. but typically you never want to make something with a safety factor less than one because that means you're des- you designed a wheelbarrow that won't even hold the 800 pounds yeah, that you were so asked. Yeah, so as soon as you pick it up with the 800 pounds, it's going to break. It's going to break. Yeah. And you don't want to build something exactly at 800 because um, of a lot of things, namely like, um, first of all, somebody might exceed the 800-pound limit because yeah, they're like, it's fine, it's yeah, fine. Yeah, well, what if... That's I, another 50 what if pounds. Dropping, what if they drop the 800 pounds into the wheelbarrow and it momentarily experiences 850 yeah, and then, you, and then you have also like wear and tear and fa- fatigue. Yeah. You have unexpected yep. forces, kind of like you were saying, where somebody's just slamming 800 pounds in there because mm-hmm. they're big, and you know, or they use it for uses outside of your intended use case. So there's a lot of these things. So mm-hmm. across different industries, um, the factor of safety is different, right? And it's different for different reasons. But like aircraft, generally one and a half to two and a half. Um, engine components, roughly six to eight, and <laughs> Structural steel bridges, uh, five five to seven. So like five to seven. Yeah, diff- I mean, I do. I want my bridges to be safe, but seven. Yeah, different wow. across dif- different uh, use cases. And, and for, the, for context, rockets are uh, one point two five. Yeah, and exactly. But there, there's a lot of reasons for this. Like, why, why can't I just make all things with a factor of safety of one hundred? Because then we'd all be super safe. Mm. You mean like 100, meaning like, like if so like, over engineered that yeah, it like couldn't if, possibly like ever break? Going back to our wheelbarrow example, like if yeah. I designed needed it to hold 800, why not design it to hold 800,000 pounds? What's I don't what's the problem with that? Uh, well, my first thought is it's going to be so heavy that the u- the intended user couldn't actually lift it to lift anything else. Yeah, that's that's, uh, that's one reason. Second is cost. All that extra material is going to cost a lot of extra. No one's going to be able to buy it, especially in this capitalist society. Yeah. <laughs> uh let's see there and yeah like just like yeah, right just, like money weight how time gonna... footprint manufacturability yeah. scalability yeah, like there's yeah. there's a whole bunch of factors yes. right um but in school 
I mean, like, right, you never, you never go beyond this. You never go beyond the basic component risk, right? You're just looking at per component basis. You're looking mm-hmm. at some sheet metal part that's bent and you're like, wow, all the stress is focused where we're bending it. And you're like, wow, that's, that's shocking. <laughs> that's shocking. Or we have a sharp corner here and, it, and it, you learn there's, yeah. you know, stress singularities and stuff like that. And like good things to know, but ultimately, right, it's component by component basis and you, you never really get outside that scope. Yeah, I agree. There, there is a shocking amount of a shockingly small amount of real world, I think, uh, not examples, but like manufacturability. I don't think anyone really touched on that at all. Yeah, and that that was some of the most fun. Even as I, you know, have designed small parts throughout my time, is th- their question is, how are you going to manufacture that, or mm-hmm. you know, what materials are going to be made out of? Because I was like, oh, I need something to be. 0.11 and they're like do you really need to be 0.11 because imagine getting a sheet of eighth inch metal and you know cnc it down to 0.11 what's the reason i'm like yeah. uh can it you know can it be 0.104 which is like 10 gauge or something i was like yeah yeah and they're like okay well that <laughs> is like exponentially cheaper yeah yeah um so yeah that, that, that's like a great point but yeah that, there's so many things like they don't teach you in the classroom and, and it's hard to relate that curriculum right because they just don't have the time what things are important what things yeah. are well and they're they're so stuck by like what the curriculum tells them they have to teach in this amount of time that yeah. you're right they, they they don't have any time to be creative with the the material yeah and it's like really like you're gonna get a lot of your on the job training on the job right like i would say 95 yeah. percent of yeah. what i use is from what i've learned on the job yeah, and that other five percent is like it's yeah, like school is teaching you, um, like you're gonna get a lot of work, and sometimes you feel overwhelmed, but you got to get it all done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it does teach you some fundamental background. You don't always use the deeper ends of it, but like fundamental understanding yeah. of a lot of things is important. Yeah, and I've I've always thought about it like this: that school is teaching you tools that mm-hmm. you, you like you put in a tool belt or toolbox or whatever. Like, I don't need to know every ins and out of Shigley's uh what Shigley's uh, mechanics and materi- or um principles of mechanical design oh, that's so sad but when I come across that at work like I did last week I know ex- I I can see the chapter in my mind and mm-hmm. I'll just open my book because we can open our books at work it's not like a test you know <laughs> I don't like tests but anyway I just open my book oh okay this is how it works explanation formulas put that in my excel sheet move on yeah like like it's it definitely helps and like not not every job will be maybe as technical as you know what you're referencing some like my job i hardly reference any technical yeah. material at all i think the yeah. most i've done is calculate the uh, um moan of inertia on a shape oh, fancy. but yeah besides that not too much but okay. like so like at a component basis I, I think it's really interesting when you step back and look at like broadly an engineering uh, project like overall and, and trying to assess the risks of that because as, as I'm starting to get into it and becoming not just involved in like component to component but overall design and um, b- bigger projects like as, system level yeah as I progress in my career yeah. it's, it's interesting to see like the di- different things they mentioned right and one's mm-hmm. like almost super easy but surpassing the cost the cost budgets yeah um, I was I was talking to my <laughs> One of, one of our other friends who works at Northrop, and he's like, I don't know how they make any money here because everything's, you know, past deadline over, over budget. And it's mm-hmm. so easy in engineering to go over budget. There's, yeah. 
you can do so many cool things in engineering, right? But like surpassing your cost budget, that's one. And not meeting deadlines is the other. And mm -hmm. like personally, at, at my time, there are so many deadlines we've failed to meet and it has cost us in a lot of ways. One, rushing to get something out. And mm -hmm. in rushing that, you ultimately failed at some part of it along the way. <laughs> so then you had to go and revisit yep. that, right? Yeah. And so you're costing yourself time, money there. Yeah. Um, and in certain cases, funding is decreased or removed. Um, that's probably in a lesser case, but maybe maybe right right now more though more so than in a while because our economy is restricting a little bit. So you see, you know, um, a lot a lot of jobs getting cut, unfortunately. Yeah. But I'm sure budgets as well. Yep. Um, well, and the reason jobs are cut is because, and this is just because I've had to write proposals for projects mm -hmm. at work. Is like some of the projects I write shockingly like 70% of the cost is labor like oh, the people wow. doing the work mm -hmm. the materials and the tooling equipment like all of that stuff is quote unquote cheap it's still like tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars but it's still much cheaper than hiring you know 20 engineers yeah, at if, various levels in their career yeah if you have 20 engineers on average let's say 7,000 a month uh, we have to use a uh, a cost of one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Oh yeah, because you're, so you're you're pricing out doing something else. You're you're averaging out what an associate makes versus what a senior principal engineer makes, okay. and so the average that that we kind of, or at least that I use. Okay, which yeah. is well, crazy. Yeah, that average is that's average is big and it adds up real quick. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, so stuff like that or. Regulations could change, right? You're you're halfway through designing your 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 next rocket over at Northrop, and they're like, "Oh, actually, your nose needs to look like this," and then your nose <laughs> team has to scrap it all and and restart, right? Or, um, I, I I've experienced a lot of this. Out, outside parties do not perform up to expectations, whether it's um, you know, parts not showing up on time, parts showing up out of tolerance or out of spec in another way getting the wrong parts, not getting your parts at all. I've experienced every one of those things and it's, it's maddening. Right. Hmm. And it's like, it's super interesting as, as just, I think through this and think through an overall project and kind, kind of, we've, we've recently launched one at work. It kind of started as a think tank idea in, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, I think it was like an end of May through early June. And then our designs roughly were finalized end of August. We wanted them to be finalized end of um, or beginning of August. And then we we pushed to get parts and we were supposed to get parts by end of mid-November to end of November. We didn't get parts until mid-January. <laughs> And then, you know, we have to go through testing and yeah, stuff. There's, so so there's our, some schedule slip in there for sure. Yeah, so like... And, you know, some of that was outside of our control, uh -huh. but a, uh -huh. as we, we initially had a January one, January one launch date, and mm -hmm. then we moved it to quarter one launch date. <laughs> um, but like it, a, a, as going through that and, you know, having, having these lofty goals, mm -hmm. it was, it was super fun, but then you realized it was, you know, one thing was off and yeah. then, you know, all, all of our goals fell apart right in front of us because there was not that allotted time mm -hmm. because, um, a, a big part of this one was suppliers, but then even once we got our own metal in, like, you know, you know, testing it went pretty good, but not exactly how we wanted to. Mm -hmm. And from that, we figured out, oh, we actually want to do more testing. 
and in different areas, right? To, to get, find out more about this product. Yeah, so more like, information, more data. So as I've been through this experience myself and seen the lofty hopium we were on to launch by January 1 and all, all the reasons and kind of a lot of them I've mentioned that we failed at, mm-hmm. I, I think if, if we were to review review and do this again, I think it would be just a fascinating exercise to, to better go through this with our whole engineering team and lay like realistic expectations and have, and have you know, like um, a, a, a month a month in there in case supplier X doesn't come through or, um, mm-hmm. build um, in some margin for supplier. And so, you know, uh, supplier things, d- yeah. design, testing, like build, build in all, all these things, because really we were like best case scenario, best case scenario, best case scenario, right? We, we were those impulsive decision makers who <laughs> didn't have all the facts, didn't yeah. look at the risk. And we were like, Oh, good, 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 good. It's going to go good, 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 good. And guess what? It went good, bad, 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 bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. That I'm experiencing some of that as well. We've had some some weird equipment failure, mm-hmm. and so when your oven fails, the carbon fiber that you're cooking fails. Okay, and so it's just we we put in you know ten twelve hours into making that sample possible, and then you have to redo the entire thing, and then someone booked up the oven, so now we have to wait two weeks instead of just waking waiting the you know next couple of days when we can get the the carbon fiber laid up and so it's like uh, we're supposed to be done like yesterday and now we have to wait two weeks for the oven to to be available yeah it's not like we have just one oven there's like hundreds Mm -hmm. but there's so they they only want to keep so many because you don't want to have extra ovens and they not be doing anything yeah and so yeah because that's a risk because you're you're oversupplying your your uh, yeah it's like monetary risk right yeah and it's yeah, it's just it's super fascinating. I I think whether whether it's culture or business or society today, but you know everything was supposed to get done yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I think in many cases that pushes us to jump too quickly to decisions we're not ready to make, or lay out timelines we're not ready to make, or you know structure a plan where we didn't adequ- adequately analyze the risk in a lot of departments. And it doesn't have to be like down to the minute detail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Kind of like we were saying before, but like big, broad strokes, we need to understand, you know, the various suppliers we're going to use and, and, um, you know, their lead times and have they delivered on it in the past, mm-hmm. you know, how that affects it, your own testing. Have, have you gone through a product series testing launch before? What was there a big failure? What time should you build in? Was there additional tests? What time should you build in? Yeah. Cost of goods, you know, all, all that's all that sort of stuff. I, I I think just in general needs needs to be allocated with a little bit more time, um, and, and thought. And I I think it would help a lot of projects, at least in my own my own engineering company. Um, but it's it's it, I just thought it was super interesting to re- really step out and look back at more than just like component risk because I, I just had never really done that. Like you could ask mm-hmm. me, well, what's the risk in launching this product? I was like, mm, I don't know. Maybe somebody won't buy it. And then that's like a whole nother thing, right? We can get into the markets. Oh, How's yeah, it going to affect the market? The yeah, financial what's the risk? risk. Yeah. 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 And like, you know, it's, it's so broad, but mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's almost fun to talk about just cause you never really get to talk about it. No. It, and I think that's one thing that I come across is there's not a, there's not like a class. There's not like a a training that you can go through at work that defines risk and can tell you like, 
when you're doing this kinds of tasks, you should have this kind of margin built into it. Because, mm-hmm. like, for your your example, the uh, supplier lead time, like, yeah, you can say, like, for carbon fiber, like, yeah, there, there could be, like, a three to six month lead time. But currently, since COVID, it's been, like, 18 months mm-hmm. lead time. Yeah. So, and, like, it, it changes all the time, and you have to be aware of it but then also understand different parts of it so like there's the supplier lead time then there's the equipment lead time because the oven situation that i talked about we have good ovens and they they work but then maybe the vacuum pump that's feeding into the oven doesn't quite pull the vacuum that we need so now you have to start over and like there's there's it's just it's a lot yeah and like yeah you can also break it down to like those those smaller things like we we had we had a, a a saw go bad, and we had a brand new saw sitting there, but it wasn't up and operational yet because we had, had didn't have somebody to come and um, commission it. So we had a brand new saw that wasn't working. We had an old saw that wasn't working, and so what we did we we were using chop saws for like six weeks because we we weren't able to get either in because you know we didn't like it was we, a table saw that wasn't working or no no so th- these these are these are like double miter saws like. Like bit like you know hundred thousand dollars, couple hundred thousand dollar machines, oh, okay. and okay. so like the risk wasn't properly looked at, and one the maintenance of this one of this old machine wasn't properly kept. It, uh-huh. it it was an older machine, didn't have people come out and service it. A lot of things were overlooked, and so we uh, introduced a lot of risk there, right? And then two, we didn't have a backup for that machine until we bought this new one, but we waited so long to get somebody to get somebody out on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. That we introduced even more risk that we were so dependent on this one machine. And then see it, but just to play devil's advocate, why mm-hmm. would you need redundancy? Cause if you have two saws, then you, you spend a lot of capital investing in two machines when you don't have the capacity to utilize those two machines all the time. We, we are building up to capacity right now. So oh, like, oh, we're, okay, like we're okay, pushing yeah. towards the volume. So yeah. there's another ca- uh, use case for it. Okay. Gotcha. But, gotcha. but also like I would argue like in a, in a lot of cases where you don't have red- redundancy in a business, mm-hmm. like you introduce a lot of risk because yeah. One, yeah, yeah. somebody or a machine or a process falls out of place. Yeah. And then everyone's like, wait, hey, how did you, that person yeah. do that thing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Oh, just use the machine. Oh, the machine doesn't work. Oh, ask, ask Larry. Oh, Larry He's doesn't work here, here anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, like so many things can get lost without redundancy. And it sometimes yeah. is frustrating as redundancy can be. It is, it is, you know, it is pretty important. Yeah. I see. I don't know if it's still the answer to have two of everything or three of everything. Cause that's kind of how big aerospace companies use. They can't just have the two. Mm-hmm. You gotta have more than just the two. <laughs> um, I think it's, let's just say like at a smaller company, like at the secret door company I worked Mm. at, they had one CNC machine and if it went down, like, okay, everyone just clean, clean the shop. Like that's all we can do today. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense for us to have two CNC machines. Yeah. But, but but. you could have the cash in cash, like in your high interest savings account that you could go and get another one. Or, or you could have, all right, what, what are, what are the service parts recommended on here? What, what, yes. what, what is the, the history of parts that we have saw, seen go readily bad? What is, mm-hmm. what is the maintenance to prevent these things? And if it something does happen, we should have the part on hand. If it's, you know, something like, you can't always, you can't plan for everything, but yeah. you know, if, if it's a part that we should have for a service, do we have it? 
and is there somebody here that can service or or yeah. do we have a plan to, to bring somebody in within yeah. x amount of days well like you can have that plan yeah absolutely like the uh, and there, there might be some parts that you have to order from china and there's a two-month lead time that might be a part you want to have exactly a spare of um and i think all these things are these are probably just things you have to learn on the job yeah and and to get back to my saw point like yeah i guess technically we, we didn't need at the time we didn't need two saws for redundancy right yeah, but yeah. this the saw went down we didn't have any service parts for it to get somebody out it was like two months so it Ooh. took forever to get somebody out and in the meantime we used different you know electricians we used different um different people of different backgrounds to try and figure out the root cause of the problem mm-hmm. um in those two months nobody succeeded we only ended up breaking it further <laughs> and then the guy came out and we finally had it fixed right but okay. because we because we didn't have the necessary parts in house you didn't be, have the plan and we didn't we didn't have the the plan or s- somebody who was able to service it within x amount of time mm-hmm. it, it you know it, it was it was a brutal two months dang yeah that's that doesn't sound fun at all but we still made it through um and, and you know to take this discussion away from you know we kind of hit component design and then we touched on like overall broad risk on a project Mm -hmm. and even you know maybe maybe some other things in there too but now i want to like turn the discussion towards risk management towards like advancing technology and like what i mean in that is like full self-driving cars or ai in general a mission to mars transatlantic tunnel um, underground cities, asteroid mining, nanofactories, like going forward in this age of exploration, in this age of technological advancement, right? Exponential technological advancement. Mm-hmm. How do we assess risk? What are we going to define as risky? Like is, is, or will it always be, is human life always going to be the most valuable thing? Cause, cause right now in any industry, right? That, that, that is the most valuable, right? That's, and every, everything we do, we're, and most things we do, we're trying to, you know, not kill somebody, essentially, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. maybe is there ever a point in time where knowledge, new knowledge, is more important than a human life? Can we send somebody to Mars and we're okay if they die because we found something out that was great? Like how 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 I, is how is future technologies gonna gonna mold risk? How do how do we manage risk in these future technologies? How do we guide the future of engineering through 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 risk, manageable risk, not like crazy high or crazy yeah. low. We don't want to impede progress. Yep. We want to keep pushing it, right? But we don't want people to die. I mean... Or, or we don't want to lose capital. We don't want to lose value. Is, is there a value I, add? <laughs> it, it, at, at, what, at what point is a human life worth risking yeah, to find so, something out amazing? So to answer that question, I don't think we're ever going to collectively be okay with someone dying just to add value. Uh, Derek I, likes people, guys. I Derek do. likes people. Whoa, whoa, come on. Come on. Hey, we're, we're all people. We can like ourselves. <laughs> um, I do know that there are people that individually take on risk to learn something. So, like, I don't I don't know if this is – you always I, – I can't remember if this is true or not. Someone tested a vaccine on themselves. Sure. Sometimes it works, and we have a new vaccine, and that's amazing, and it saves – millions of people mm-hmm. and then other times it doesn't but they took on that risk imagine the u.s government saying 
okay, that group of people is not worth saving. I guess this is more of an ethics question. Yeah, but, but. <laughs> yeah, is that, yeah, okay, that, that's like very ethical. But like, what if, what if we, what if we send a mission to Mars and we send five astronauts and through them, we discovered there's life on Mars, but they all get murdered because the life on Mars kills them. Like, was, was, isn't it awesome? Like, they, they're risking their lives the whole time, but is it, is it is it more I, awesome to society that we found extra life than than you know this than killing a, the five people? <laughs> I mean, I know it's kind of a crazy a, question. That is a crazy question. I don't know. My second thought about this is especially nowadays with how much data is being generated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I heard Joe Rogan on his podcast. Someone said that there is more data being generated day to day than there was data between the birth of the universe and up till like 2004. Mm -hmm, That amount of data is generated daily now. And I think with more and more data, we're going to be able to more finely tune our risk models. Through AI or just in general? Uh, In general, like sure, AI might be able to to incorporate all of that data more succinctly than a, a human, but humans have intuition um, yeah, which AI can't, can't do. There's like there's this fascinating aspect of AI, right? There's like a data first AI and a knowledge first AI. Um, I've not heard of this. Well, like think of think of it in the case of like nuclear factories or nuclear power plants. Sorry. Okay. Um, nuclear power plants are. I I you know I I think they're 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 on the leading edge of the end the energy sector, right? I mean pushing pushing towards energy and the pros and cons that come with that but like let, let's say we have ai managing the risk of um when when it's going to explode yeah okay how many of the handful of nuclear factories that we do have have exploded like one or two right i know the one in japan and i believe there's one in europe somewhere russia Chernobyl. russia um and so out of the handful we have two two have failed that I know of for, let's say, those two reasons. There's not enough data there to extrapolate like how the others are going to fail, mm-hmm. right? So that that's where you take like a knowledge-based AI and based on like the physics that humans know and um, classical failure theories and stuff like that, that can be applied to us to assess those things, right? And yeah. so like... Because your data set's so small. Exactly. Okay. And there, there's an argument that you know most data is too sufficiently small for ai to manage risk yes for now and looking a decent bit into the future like even even if even if we take even if we take let's say like all all the f-150s on the road which is a lot that's a lot that's the best-selling truck Mm -hmm. just in many years but like when you when you break it down you know there's there's x amount of each year there's Mm -hmm. x amount of changes between each year there's x amount of trim packages and finished packages and performance packages each year yeah, yeah. And, and there's x amount of failures per subcategory 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 mm-hmm. each year so now now maybe you're like 100 million data points is now broken into smaller sets of like 10 or fifteen thousand clumps over a lot and and you know it's it's and it's it's hard for just a, a pure data pure data to understand that and you, you can supplement that with knowledge base right mm-hmm but then, but then now, like managing managing that one is understanding the faults between between each sort of AI. But then two, 
managing AI in general, like we're super scared of this knowledge side of AI, right? So how, how do you, in, in, in the Terminator sense, right? When they all, they all machines up. come to kill robots, right? Is, is there some kill switch you can put in AI or is there some way you can prevent like, you, you know what I mean? I think it's yeah. interesting to look at all these technologies and how you can no, I, I agree. look at it, risk through them. There's, I, I was, I still want to counter though. Like imagine we, COVID is not the first pandemic to rage through the world. Mm-hmm. The Spanish flu was that was in the Ebola. Like, dude, yeah. I, I was in I was in Africa during Ebola. Like, that oh, was that's... some scary stuff. Yeah, and, I, and like that. Yeah, that was very country specific, but yeah, still terrifying. But I mean, what if there was some? What if the uh, World Health Organization had a AI that monitored for uh, uh, viruses or or bacteria or or you know, anything that could be causing a pandemic and it could analyze, you know, the location, how close is it to airports or waterways? What's the population size? How does that population size interact? Mm-hmm. Because in Germany, they don't touch unless they're, uh, never mind. The, but in, in West Africa, they, a lot of times they eat out of the same bowl with their hands together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the risk for transmission in Germany is probably not the same as in Ghana. And so you can have an AI model analyzing those kinds of threats continually and say, okay, Hey, there's, there's something that's popped up recently that has a very strong likelihood of spreading and then possibly drastically reduce the spread or eliminate it altogether yeah and that that can be a way it helps and just to play devil's advocate a little bit i mean like looking at data backed if if you're trying to look at like uh you know parasite or bacteria specific like there's new strands popping up each and every day and like how many versions of corona have we gone through like like they're always evolving like it's 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 almost be impossible to keep it's it's it'd be a powerful predictive tool to help mitigate risk but you know it's it's still there but no that like that's a good point i'm not saying like all these things are hurtful and oh, it won't oh, help us manage no, no, risk yeah. but we're just discuss discussing but just in sure. general yeah i think that there's there's definitely greater understanding going throughout the public of of risk because like for example the whole gamestop short thing mm-hmm. that happened in uh, a couple years ago like there are financial tools that people were not even aware of that were put right front center stage of, you know, what was happening to companies and what hedge funds were doing and like to how they were making money, making a lot of money too. And stuff like that, like knowledge is, is being disseminated throughout the world. And I think that when you under, when you have knowledge, you start to understand risk. Like I tell my wife all the time, there's there's risk out me driving my car to work. I could die. Yeah. But me, I understand defensive driving. I understand driving conditions. I understand my car dynamics, and I can mitigate those risks. And so I'm not afraid of, of that specific uh, event occurring because my risk model is is, is decent. You know what I mean? Because yep. I, I, I learned about... I know my car. I've worked on my car. I've replaced components on my car. I'm pretty confident in that. I, I understand how to, you know, drive in, in wet conditions and icy conditions. Like those are things that you can do to understand your risk. 
And and once you upgrade to that self drive full self driving package on that new electric car, it, even better, right? I I I think one of my favorite points that Veritasium made about self driving cars, in his video about self driving cars, he he came to Phoenix and did the, uh, um, Waymo. Waymo, thank mm-hmm. you. He did the Waymo drive with the driverless car, and he's like the the way, you could make driving a car, completely safe, a hundred percent safe, by taking all the drivers out of the equation. Yeah, and I was like, "You're not wrong," because if you can com- if you can perfectly time, uh, passing and stopping and all those different things, why do you need stoplights? Cars can just like just miss <laughs> each other, and like it's yeah. just a perfectly choreographed uh, experience. And yeah, no, that, that's true. But yeah, taking it broader to this, taking it back to this broader yes, broader yeah, thing of technology, you you still think human life. Will will still always always become like the final verdict of risk, which is fair, but then maybe looking towards more technology, like, um, r- like sending something to Mars, like risk of financial investment there, like you're building out a lot of equipment to go see if there is life or set up a base on life, or you're sending stuff into deeper space. How, how do like how do you manage that that ri- that financial risk too? Or even in like asteroid mine. Like, yeah. It, you know, I'm curious of what, what will dictate the future. And, you know, I, I, I have no idea on this. I'm, I'm just, I'm proposing the question because I think it, it's it's fascinating on yeah. where it will push society and how fast we'll get there because of how we decide to manage risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Well, so one thought, and I'm curious what you think. I'm, I think that risk eventually will start to come down for most situations. So like back in the day, hundreds of years ago, I could be working on the farm and cut my hand and lose my arm. And so like the risk of losing my arm was pretty significant, but now it's very, very unlikely that I'll, I'll ever lose my arm or, yeah. or, um, it's very, very unlikely that I'll invest in a Ponzi scheme because there are financial <laughs> regulations against those kinds of things and people yeah, they still exist. They definitely still exist. They definitely still exist. But you know those the the YouTuber commercials like buy my course and I can help you trade mm-hmm. options to be a bajillionaire. Bedr- yeah. We we understand the risk of that and most people do understand like oh that's a scam. I know people are still making money from that, but <laughs> A lot of people are yeah, starting to figure out that enough. okay, the 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 Nigerian prince that emailed me that says he needs help <laughs> is fake. What, we're starting t- we're starting to figure these risks out. Yeah, we're starting to wise up and and understand. And yeah, I think that's true for everything that exists in society now. Everything that currently exists, I think, in the future, at some point, we will mitigate risk. Like a hundred mm-hmm. years ago, mm-hmm. your your lost arm today is some antibacterial spray and a band-aid or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. right yeah but 100 years ago you didn't have to worry about dying on the way to work with your car because there weren't cars right so technology is always gonna um bring up new things and introduce yeah. new risks um and i'm just curious how we continue to navigate those um but yeah i think we'll continue to mitigate risks of a lot of things we have now but I, I, I'm just fascinated on how technology is going to continue to inspire us mm-hmm. with risk. Yeah. Well, and it, it's almost as if, like, risk is something that drives innovation because there's a risk of not innovating and living the mm-hmm. life that we still have. 
and it, it's a different kind of risk because you're you're not risking capital or or anything like that but imagine if we just were like oh we have the internet why why build anything else yeah and, that, and that's also almost bringing back to our discussion earlier the super fun thing about risk is you can draw it into so many ways but what what factors count what what do we even consider worth mm-hmm. time considering risk over yeah um yeah it's it's awesome i i, I wish i wish there's more discussions in society about risk because <laughs> even even as you say like we more knowledge comes to everybody which should mitigate risk you know i think it's still something in a lot of people's decisions whether it's life finances career job at the job uh-huh. in the workplace don't consider it enough yeah no and the other thing to consider too is not everyone needs to know every, like everything like yeah, that'd be a boring we're, world. We're engineers, so we are trained to focus on, you know, material properties and manufacturability and, you know, X, Y, Z. We could really care less about the uh, – I'm actually having trouble figuring anything else that's not engineering-related. The uh, – you, you can go into the financial risk. You can go into, like, product mar- market release, yeah, stuff y- like that. Yeah, your, your market research. We could care less about market research because it doesn't affect, you know, how we design because we're just going to design the best thing that we can possibly given the constraints. Mm-hmm, exactly. And so we're not really – we don't understand the, the risks of, of market research and having, you know, bad market research anyway. I think it's just something that we can do to just know that, you know, not everyone we we're here to to work together you you understand risks of your company i understand risks of my company we can work together and do bigger things better things wow inspirational yeah got him okay but yeah i mean that's that's broadly all the topics i wanted to hit on excellent excellent of risk and really just really just bring up and garner this discussion because I thought it was a fascinating one and one I wanted to have. So, yeah, no, no, I, I was not expecting that kind of topic. Usually they're more hardware, hardware based or software based, but this is kind of a, a whole different category altogether. Yeah. Um, still tied into engineering there. Oh yes. We, it's hard to get away from engineering for us, but yeah, we, uh, we hope you uh, enjoyed this episode and got something out of it and we'll catch you on the next one.